one. Hello and welcome to Global Skiing. This is Tom Gelly and today I'm going to be skiing with uh, someone a little different um, to some of my previous guests and his name is Gary Ward. And so uh, Gary Ward, I'm going to let him talk about his background, but he's, uh, he's a passionate skier. He's not a ski instructor, but uh, he knows a hell of a lot about how the body moves, uh, anatomy, uh, feet in particular, and so I'm really interested to chat with him about his thoughts on um, skiing, boot fitting, the body, and uh, and much more, hopefully. So welcome to the Global Skiing Podcast, Gary. Hi, Tom. Thank you. <laughs> to be here. Yeah. Um, excellent. So, Gary, for people that don't know you, um, can you tell us uh, about what you're currently doing for a living, so what anatomy and motion is, and then I guess the background to how you got there. Okay. Um, yeah, so I maybe I'll start with background to how I got there. I think that's more organic. Yeah, but, perfect. Um, so in 1999, I began my ski bum career uh as a in the alps uh where i began kind of working rental and managing a team of ski instructors in france uh, which very quickly became running a uh, technical retail ski shop so selling hardware skis boots um uh, we did clothing and stuff as well so everything that got you in fine shape for for the uh, skiing on the hill but the, the boot fitting side was the thing that really captured me and was what we spent the majority of our time doing. Um, and for me, I'd never, never done anything anatomical before apart from, you know, weight training and the usual stuff. Uh, and so this introduction to the foot as an anatomical structure really kind of fascinated me and I was quickly kind of hooked into it within a couple of days um, and became slightly obsessed with the idea that wow, we can actually make subtle changes to people's feet and have a huge impact on their skiing, um, which uh, fast forward uh, 15, 16 years has become we can make subtle changes in people's feet and have a huge impact on their not just their body but their life, their livelihood and their the pain that they endure on a day-to-day basis, but also performance, which goes back to the ski thing. So um, Modifying somebody's ski boots would get them out of pain, would also enhance their experience on the hill and all around lend itself to a, a fantastic kind of week on, on, on the mountain. So mm-hmm. um, pain and performance has always been something that I've been kind of highly uh, into. So moving on from the skiing, when I did seven winters, I think, um, moved on to um personal training and sports therapy uh sports massage um doing all the courses that i could find to help me work with people's pain and performance um and eventually decided to stop doing that and start teaching others because uh what i discovered was when you bring the foot into the world of movement and training and exercise and therapy it there was a big gap in the market. So Anatomy in Motion was born uh, where I use my understanding of how the foot moves and how the foot uh, leads into the rest of the body and how it affects different phases of our walking cycle, uh, the impact it will have on our hips, our spine, our neck, our shoulders, um, even our hands and wrists and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Anatomy in Motion became this little pop-up workshop that ran around telling anybody who 
was interested uh, about how to work with the body as a full, holistic, integrated structure um, to improve the intercommunication between one joint and another. So we're not treating one joint, but we're treating a series of joints. In fact, we're just treating the body. Um, uh, and um, I, I designed the, the flow motion model, which is a simple look at gait. So in order to assess a person's body, we take a look at gait, we take gait, we look at heel strike, for instance, when the heel comes in contact with the ground and we look at what every joint is doing at that moment in the gait cycle in all three dimensions um, and write, wrote it down and made sure it was right and studied it and um, eventually we have five phases that quickly can become ten, uh, but we keep it at five to keep it simple. Sixth phase is the, is the swing phase. Mm-hmm. Um, and throughout this phase of movement, we I discovered that every single possible joint motion that we have available to us must happen in that cycle. Um, and the cycle lasts, each step lasts between 0.6 and 0.85 seconds. So that is utter chaos that we just wanted to kind of bring some simplicity to. Yeah. Uh, but it means that if you can't do something, if you can't flex your spine to the left, it's going to show up. There's going to be two particular phases in the cycle that you cannot access. It's also going to mean bringing it back to skiing. There's going to be accesses, uh, sorry, it's going to be spaces in your skiing motion that you're also going to struggle to access. And so rather than not access it, what we do is we compensate. And then we all know about compensation. We all know about skiers not being able to turn one way better than the other. Yep. Uh, we all know about throwing the shoulders. Um, and all these compensations can be minimized by taking a holistic look at the, at the body. Um, yep. Again, so that you can not ski in pain and that you can ski on a better level than you ever have before mm-hmm. so um going back to when you first started because i have done i also took a pretty keen interest in ski boot fitting after many years of just painful feet in ski boots because <laughs> yeah. um i don't think ski boots are really designed uh fantastically and i think everyone needs to customize their own ski boots anyway i had some training at snow and rock in london and a couple of shops in um, in Covent Garden. Yep. Yep. And yep. so obviously that was through mostly CDAS. Who who did you begin? Where did you like? Who was the the person that kind of gave you that that's that interest we, in? Yeah. We had three three guys I think in three days who literally blew my head off. Um, <laughs> The first guy was Julian Mills, who is still uh, can be found in Chamonix. Uh, he used to work um, the footwork store, uh, which is predominantly a super feet uh, kind of set up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but his anatomy of the foot and introducing me to looking at gait was, uh, you know, primarily that guy's uh, responsibility. Um, a second guy was a guy called Croc, a good old Aussie, who <laughs> uh, um, is now in Saint-Foy, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, the third guy was the CDAS or Confirmable um, guy in France whose name escapes me at the moment. Um, but yeah, the, we went down to the Confirmable place, the, the home of Confirmable CDAS in, uh, in Voiron in France to uh, every year, in fact, to, to kind of update and work with the products and yeah. you know, getting used to building the footbeds in the, in the store. And then... Uh, years later, when I'd actually finished skiing um, and was working quite heavily on anatomy and motion, uh, a chap called H- Hamish Wolfenden, who used to write a lot of um, 
was write a lot of articles for you know uh, the, the ski mags and stuff about boot fitting. And he was a, had a, ba- a master's in biomechanics in the windlass mechanism, especially and its role in the skiing. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so we we connected really quite strongly. Um, sadly, he's not around anymore, but uh, his legend lives on in my eyes. Yeah. 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 Cool. Do you remember like a particular thing early on learning about? that you were like, oh, my God, that pertains to me. That's my my foot does that or doing this allows me to, like, do you remember, was there a moment like that? Well, the first thing that comes to mind, I stood up on the boot bench on the first morning. So I was in charge of this crew. Yeah. So they picked me out, Gary, stand up on the boot bench and turn around and we'll have a look at your feet. And the first thing this Julian Mill said to me was, can you say quack? <laughs> um, Turned out, turned out <laughs> flat feet, you know, you've got high mobile arches. They were just collapsed to the floor. The toes were turned out. I, and I think the biggest thing was for me, which always stood the test of time, is how did I not even know that? Uh-huh. And, and yeah, and, and, and there's this idea we can consciously treat stuff, unconsciously <laughs> treat stuff. But unless you bring something into somebody's awareness, they, they don't know. We don't know what we don't know. And this was my – I think this was my biggest thing was – what we do is if you can bring awareness to somebody, then they all of a sudden they have a reason to either work with it or dismiss it, but at least they're aware of it. Um, and that was one of the big, the big step ups for me, which I think has always led, carried on with, with what we're doing. For instance, you know, it, people don't know that they can't left laterally flex their spine or they don't know that they, yeah. they don't, they don't know that they don't extend their hip. And of course they think they do, but they're just working out a way to do it, but it's just not, in this busy day-to-day life, we're just not aware of it. So that I think that for me was one of the, like literally the first morning, you know, those first minutes of yeah. oh, this is a cool session. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, um, I learned so much about myself in, in kind of milliseconds. And it was it was even this, a similar thing I was when I was personal training back in, I remember walking down the road and looking at people and um, spotting this guy in the mirror with his pelvis shifted forward and his feet turned out and pathotic. <laughs> And I realized it was me in a shop window and I got a massive <laughs> shot. <laughs> and, um, and, and so, I mean, the whole thing probably has just been a journey to me, you know, trying to work myself yeah. out. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's why yeah. I ask because, yeah, I definitely got into it probably more out of a personal interest to begin with because I started realizing why, you know, certain parts of my feet hurt and and that sort of yeah. thing and that that it was amazing you can change all this with, you know, adjust like wedges and and yeah. punches and grinds and all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's cool. So um, now, looking back, given your role in treating people's alignment now with anatomy in motion, yeah. would you would you say to someone, so if your best friend or whatever is going to get their ski boots fitted? Would you tell them they'd they'd get far more value if they first came and saw someone like yourself to sort out how they moved in their alignment before they went and got their ski boots and all that sort of stuff done? Absolutely. I would, yeah, 100%. I mean, not everybody will, but those who... It is... We have experience, what I should say. We have experience. We have a kind of body of anecdotal evidence that we can change the way your foot moves and therefore change the foot's resting structure um, within an hour or an hour or so's work. So if we can do that, do you want to do that before you have your insoles built for your boot or do you want mm-hmm. to do it after? Um, 
we've had people walk in with their prescribed orthotics who can't put them in their shoes because they make them feel weird or they re-alter their alignment, which inevitably they would because they're set to the old alignment pattern. Um, and an orthotic for me is is has got to be, it's kind of a, a down the line something, whereas if we can change the mechanics of somebody's structure, how they work, how they stand, even if they do need orthotics at the end of that, um, then we want to be setting it an orthotic to support an optimal aligned structure rather than supporting a, a suboptimal aligned structure. And so the same really goes for, for skiing. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think it's um, some people would find it difficult to believe, but you can actually change the way someone's feet look and sit on the ground in a really short space of time, like like you said, in an hour. Am I right? Yeah. 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 I mean, not always. Uh, no. But- you want, if you get to down to the nitty-gritty of what's holding somebody's structure back and you can clear that, then uh, you can have some pretty outstanding uh, kind of outcomes. Um, and I have literally stood in rooms with people who are looking at their feet going, I've got arches, like, what have you done? <laughs> uh, and yep. it goes on. Uh, there are other podcasts where this is kind of has been discussed, but, but at the end of the day, if you can change the foot's role, which is not just to stand on, but to experience movement on the ground and movement above, and you change the internal structure of the foot's relationship with the external environment, so it's not just stepping on a flat surface every every step of the way, but it's able to experience different terrains, which we might use a wedge to create terrain, mm-hmm. uh, different experiences we're able to encourage each bone to uh, articulate in a three-dimensional way with the bone or bones that surround it um, mm-hmm. then all of, this is all awareness like if the brain doesn't know that i'm supposed to i can move that structure there because it hasn't done it for 20 years mm-hmm. um it suddenly has the ability to move that then it changes the muscle around it and um, it's almost like muscles are an internal orthotic that, that we've lost the ability to use so if we can recreate through joint motion, the reaction in the muscle is to work effectively, then it has to change the foot structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what led to our, what we call poor man's foot scans, which is just quick drawing around the foot, measuring subtalar joint axis uh, before and afters, and you can see some drastic uh, changes in the subtalar joint axis. You can see some drastic changes in the range available uh, to that in two particular phases of the gait cycle. So we, uh, when I, it, you know, it would probably never pass an evidence-based practice uh, mm-hmm. process. But if you're consistent in your measuring, then you yourself can see can see the before and after effect, and your client can, and and it brings solid awareness to them of what's possible. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I've started playing around with those um, before the course coming up, and it's been cool, amazing to see. Even with you know just measuring with your fingers, how much you you know it's not that accurate, but you can still see there's a different, definite, different, measurable difference. So, if you measure the same before and after, then you're gonna you'll you'll see the change or not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so if you'd had someone come in, this your best friend again, and they'd taken your advice, they'd come to see you, and you'd started working on sort of balancing their body and their feet and their spine and everything so was starting to find more of a a central kind of point then when you sent him to the ski boot shop what do you think are some important aspects of a good ski boot fit so that 
when he's skiing, he can still access all these things perhaps you've, you know, given his foot access to, for instance, you know, functional yeah. pronation, supination, and, you know, all the, all the articulations of the joints. What are some well, key I aspects of a boot fit? Primarily the boot has to fit. I think that was the biggest, over all the years, the biggest failing uh, for people who were renting or invested in boots with, were that they were buying boots too big. Mm-hmm. Um, I assume that you kind of agree with that. Definitely, uh, yeah. And it, obviously it makes sense. If you're going to buy boots, you want them to be comfortable. Uh, when you put your foot in a boot that fits, initially it's not comfortable. And the first reaction for anybody doing that is to take their foot out and say, no, it's too small. Um, and so there needs to be trust with the fitter that they that they know what they're doing and that they're going to take you through a process whereby by in an hour's time this thing is going to fit and it's going to be perfect. So um, that's one of the f- more most common pieces of advice that I that I give people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we used to base that on, um, as you probably know, take the liner out, stand in the shell of the boot, which I still know loads of people do don't do yep. today. Yeah, um, and you're looking at p- p- brushing your toes against the end of the boot, just taking a look at the space, taking a look at the space down the back of the the boot, and we'd be looking at. I remember it was something like between point, you know, eight point eight centimeters to one point two centimeters, which I always thought it was still a bit on the tight side for recreational skiers. So around between one and one point five, probably yep. for for someone, and then you put the liner in, and I used to explain to them. I'd look at their foot, and they, if they were pronated, they're gonna they're gonna find when they put the boot on, they're gonna find the big toe at the end. They're gonna find the medial ankle putting pressure. They're gonna find the lateral forefoot around the little toe putting pressure, and probably the instep, which is inevitably sitting in the wrong part of the boot, mm-hmm. feeling pressure. So I'd probably say the boot's gonna feel too small. You're gonna feel pressure here, 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 and here, um, and then. And I just warned them all up in the front, so they knew that I was knew what I was talking about. Yeah. Um, and then we'd look at building the orthotic. So I shouldn't call it an orthotic because we used to build insoles. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and that was done relative to um, building around their middle mid arch, neutral arch, calcaneus aligned, toe up in the windlass mechanism, just to get a good neutral foot, um, and and filling the space, but knowing. Well, it was my own learning, really, rather than instruction. But if people had an orthotic that they couldn't move, it would cause a problem. And if they had a, an orthotic that they could move too much, it, it also caused a problem. So that in itself was a kind of a fine balance um, between... Kind of enough support and... enough, Yeah, enough, not enough. And it's that idea that an orthotic, even in a, if I talk about kind of in everyday football, where then a... An, an orthotic or any support needs to both allow and limit movement at the same time because mm-hmm. you can't take movement away from the body and those that do do cause problems so um and i think that then once you got the orthotic into the boot then people would feel they would naturally feel those pressure points that we'd made them aware of would disappear and the toes would be pulled back a little bit uh, and they'd be able to feel comfort in the boot i, I do i do still think that um probably insoles are required in a ski boot i think um you're probably a, i wouldn't say foolish but it, it's wise to have something in there rather than just the standard uh, base plate mm-hmm. just to help the heel hold and create the space around the forefoot and, and optimize the movement so that you can transmit your energy onto a ski edge yep 
That's interesting because in the last year since finishing uh, my study in rolfing and I guess becoming more interested in the body and the feet and, you know, this whole minimalist shoe movement and everything, I took yeah. my orthotics or my insoles out, sorry, yeah. last season and actually found, and of course a lot of it could be placebo, but I found I really liked the way... Interesting. Yeah, it felt, but I guess I'll put this on top. The rest, so underneath my foot had no... It was flat. I had that have that completely flat. However, I've made sure the top of my foot has has good contact. Um, all the spaces that I guess, like the navicular bone, had room to just move enough. Um, there was like an even contact all along the shin. So when I flexed forward, I had sort of the feedback against my shin was it wasn't pushing more in one place than, than another. It was kind of even. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I did guess, you did you modify the boot to make those things happen? Yes, absolutely. And a lot of time spent doing my own kind of stuff and cutting the liner and kind of skiing on it and, and then coming back and, and changing things. Um, the only, and, thing, the only yeah. thing I'd say is, is, um, you're probably going to stick yourself in the one percent, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes down to my, my, you know, my best mate, as you called him, who, yeah, uh, you know, works in a bank, which I, uh, I don't, I don't have a best mate. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if he's, if he's working in a bank all year and then he goes skiing one week a year, um, and he might be able to ski, but um, you know, he's, he's pro he's definitely in the 99%. And then that's where I'd say that that support is kind of needed to, to help not backtracking on what I said. I think it's cool that you've managed to do that. I certainly haven't tried to do that. One of the things that was, is close to you is, uh, there's a company in Spain called Podo Activa, mm -hmm. uh, and they have what I consider the best orthotic making system I've ever seen. Um, and they, decided that they would start doing it for ski boots um and i kind of thought when they measured me up and provided me with the insoles i thought that's just not going to work for me that just the the arch isn't creating contact with my with my arch that's uh -huh. i'll give it a go and i'll give you some feedback you know out of uh, the respect we kind of have for each other's work and yep. uh, they were the best thing that ever happened in my skiing it was just, really I, still, I couldn't really uh, they, it's the way the way they 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 move with you. It wasn't a full. They had freedom in the arch, but it was much more comfortable. The heel was really well held. Yeah, um, and I kind of feel what I was doing more. So I then had a sense that I was probably building up, uh, or I had had my orthotics built up too high to really support the foot. Yeah, in years before, so I was still using the same orthotics as I was years ago, which is probably foolish and um but in itself but having done lots of work on my feet and my skiing improved i think i'm a better skier now than when i was doing my ski seasons because of the awareness in the body yep um but then when those insoles went in and it, whatever they do over there they really um wow. really lit up my uh, my system and my feeling and the turn and the comfort and the joy yeah yeah no that's good to know just cuz obviously like I said, the kind of one percent thing. I'm, you know, I have this idealistic view of, you know, I would like to be, you know, 
doing it all myself and making sure my body is reacting to exactly what it's feeling and but it's really good to know that you would still you know that's it's horses for courses and other people that you know it's, it's, also pro- to know it's okay yeah it's also it's okay right because because we're yeah. so obsessed with what we're doing and you know we'll be skiing naked next exactly yeah, yeah. Yep, yep, exactly, exactly. Uh, cool, well, I'm going to look up those people in Spain. Um, okay, awesome. So what about, for instance, uh, you know, because you've obviously seen people with issues, you know, feet issues because their toes have been squished all the time, like uh, width-wise. So do you think that that's an important area in a, in a boot to be right? Because yeah. that, yeah, like, can you give an example of what perhaps that can do to foot function? Um, well, if, yeah, like, say, the big toe is adducted or pushed in towards the second toe. Yes, uh, kind of a, a million thoughts bombarding me at once. <laughs> <if> I <laughs> break them down. So that comes down to toe box shape. So I think it goes back to what I initially said the right fit so the right shaped boot for your foot is obviously better than taking the wrong shaped boot for your foot and modifying it um initially in terms of fit i think second part that i'd say in terms of fit is most people have toe problems because the boot's not the right size the heel's not held and they get they they slip forward into the ski boot a little bit and that and that, mm-hmm. that pushes their, their toes into the narrowing of the toe box which causes the the compromise um but then biomechanically, then the idea of having not having... I mean, I've always lived on a philosophy, which I think came from, from Croc, was that your heel wants to be really tightly held, and the, you, the forefoot you just want as as big as a house, I think, were his words. So you've got plenty of room and freedom there. Um, just trying to think mechanically of having the having the, the toes all adapted towards the that second toe. Yeah. What does that do? I'm not you know, say for instance that like because pronation, functional good pronation. So with your ankle flexed at the start of the turn is going to help you get on an early edge and set yeah. yourself up. So if your toes, big toes, were was pushed in and your little toes were pushed in, what could that do? Well, again, I'm all about the gait cycle. So. Mm-hmm. The, when you when you pronate the foot, you're gonna. If we just look top down at the foot, you should have an internally rotating ankle, yep. and an, in front of the navicular forward, you'll have an abducting uh, forefoot, um, and you you probably find that the, the the toes themselves also the toes also are moving laterally. Laterally, yep, out so to the side, yep. Halleck-Valgus position, yep. but all five toes. So at no point in the gait cycle do you find all the toes all closing towards each other, so i.e. the fourth and fifth toes facing left while the big toes facing right. Yep. So, so in terms of having pronation restrict, that would that for me would restrict, would restrict pronation. It would also make it difficult to supinate because you'd then need the toe to kind of be opposing. Yep. Uh, the... Uh, if you gripping any gripping of the toes, yep. so inevitably I think that compact space, uh, the closing of the structures on the underfoot, 
the narrowing of the metatarsals would lead to some kind of gripping. Yep. And gripping, if anybody can try this, but if you grip your toes and try bend your knee and try and pronate your foot, you'll notice that it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. So find people will use um, toe gripping as a way of minimizing their pronation. So they'll um, well, completely just avoid uh, pronating by toe gripping. So in order to relax the toes, we have to put the mechanics of pronation back in, into place or minimize the overpronation that they're trying to avoid. So, I mean, for me, toes are really kind of uh, sly, crafty characters. They, I, I, my little nickname for toes is the last line of defense. So if mm-hmm. there's something wrong with the hip, I can try and modify by my knee. If, if the knee doesn't do it, I can try and modify with my rear foot. If the rear foot doesn't do it, then it, I can go to the forefoot. But if the forefoot doesn't do it, the toes have got to. There's no yep. there's no. Uh, and so yep. we really can't compromise their space and freedom for movement, which is actually quite complex. And it is, I think, three-dimensional. Um and obviously limiting movement there is going to work back up one into the forefoot and limit that movement around the metatarsals and the cuneiforms. Um, and then just what, if you just, if you compromise anything in the foot, the question you have to ask yourself is where am I going to get that movement from? Yeah. Uh, and then we start looking up the chain. So it's, you're probably going to find in skiing that it's going to be hips. It's probably going to be rotational. And if your hips can't do it, the shoulders will be doing it. Um, and you'll feel uncomfortable at the same time. So why not mm-hmm. give them space to breathe and let them move and do their thing and, and yeah, optimize. It's an exchange. Movement biomechanics in movement as a whole body structure is, is an exchange. So whenever something can't do something, something else will have to take up the slack because you can't break this um, kind of holistic chain. So something somewhere has to do what can't be done. And that's where that's what we call imbalance and compensation. But it, it's actually a kind of functional requirement of the body yes. or a responsibility of the body to make up for that. So the last thing we want to do really is compromise them <laughs> in yeah. by buying the wrong boot. Yeah. Buying a lang when you should be wearing a technica or something. Yeah. 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 So that's just uh, made me think of uh tensegrity. Are you familiar with yeah. Uh, yeah, tensegrity? Like is that similar kind of concept in a way to this yep absolutely yeah so you take Uh, something from somewhere like tension out or add tension in and somewhere else has to kind of take up that slack like the body works almost like a tensegrity structure yeah 100 percent. i mean it's an architectural model and if you study the body closely you'll notice that the majority of our architectural structures are already evident in our body somewhere. And so, you know, what came first, the body or architecture? Yeah. Uh, and and there's probably no, it wasn't, I don't think necessarily that somebody invented architecture on the back of looking at the body, but they're, they're just structures that work, structures that have a role and um, and they're present in both. But And tensegrity is just one, and this brings in the kind of conversation of joints and muscles. So... If you have a tensegrity model, and for those who don't know, uh, listening, it's, it might be like a, a child's toy where each a bar, a piece of string, and, a, and some balls are all joined together to, to make a structure that has a center of mass where if you, if you move any part of that a tiny bit, the whole structure has to morph and change shape. And in essence, that is what the human body is doing every second of the day through mm-hmm. through the gait cycle, through your skiing motion, just standing still. Um, and it brings joints and muscles in uh, because it, it invites the idea of tension and compression. So if there's too much compression somewhere, there'll be too much tension somewhere else. 
Um, and the only time that we can eliminate tension or compression is to have a system that's in balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the muscles are the area that become under tension. When we get length in a system, in a muscle system, uh, it must mean that a joint is closing somewhere to create a compressive force. So um, we could have somebody who they, they get pain on the on the right hand side of their low back, and that and that pain you could look at it and go, well, that is completely compressed, therefore it's potentially a joint structure, mm-hmm. or that space completely open, therefore it's potentially a, a muscle tension structure. Yeah. Uh, but you know the same. You're still going to do the same process for that person, and that's to create space on the compression or to put tension back into the short muscles and take tension out of the long muscles um, to create what I've coined as zero tension, um, mm-hmm. which is where you know, you've got no tension all around the body. Means everything is is in balance. So zero tension or zero compression, um, and zero being that kind of point point of balance. So entering a ski turn, for instance, as you turning left and your hips right into the into the mountain and your your head's upright leaning away from the mountain you can picture that whole left side of the body up up the side of the hip through the the left obliques and there, there's going to be a lot of tension through there and you're also going to be compressing a lot of the the right hand side um now if you get enter into a ski turn and you're already compressed on the right and have got tension on the left due to your natural postural setup due to a disc injury you had eight years ago mm-hmm. that no longer causes pain um, you probably fall into that turn quite easily, but the chance of getting out of it and into the opposite <laughs> is really difficult because you somehow have to now decompress the the compressed area and, and shorten up the, the tensioned area, um, and that and that that's the kind of thing that affects the system. So yep. yeah, you look at it big picture, small picture, but, but generally, if we move one thing or one thing can't move, something else will have to do the work for it, or or something else gets a day off. Type. Yep. Awesome. So um, I was going to uh, ask you about, so if we've, I think I mentioned a bit before, if if a pronating outside foot, say we're, we're going to start a turn to the right, we use our left foot and allow it to pronate, so our yeah. center of mass moves a little bit to the inside of our skis. So if pronation helps move the center of mass inside of the turn, then what function does do you think supination has um, in skiing? So after that's that pronation has pronation has happened, yeah. What what in your head do you see the supination part sort of helping with, and where and do you have an idea of where you think that would happen in in the ski turn in the middle at the end just afterwards? Yeah. Okay. Um, so. It's a good good topic for talking about, isn't it? Without without visuals, <laughs> without visuals, yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, is what if if we need pronation in the in the ski cycle, ski turn? Yep. Then we must need supination. We just have to need it, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense of the the, the two come as a pair. Um, if we take away pronation, we take away supination, um, and that and that goes to if somebody is stuck in pronation, then they've also not got access to pronation does that make sense so they yep. also take away their, they both remove their pronation and their supination potential this is half the problem with people mm-hmm. um the the, the the stuckness into one side of the coin i.e pronated or supinated just eliminates the fact that they can do either uh, and so that that's 
one one thing is 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 the idea of supinating simply creates the opportunity to pronate. So there's one role for it to start yeah. with. Uh, if we're going to create the idea that pronation is important, then supination must be important to return out and drop back in. Um, does that make sense? Yep. Absolutely. Um, the feet have a relationship with your center of mass. So my, if I stand up tall, my right foot is, um, both feet are on the ground, pelvis stood over the top. If I pronate my left foot, anybody should be able to do this, just standing up, just pronate the left foot, and you should feel that your pelvis shifts across to the right. And if, if you can't feel that, uh, just stand and take your pelvis to the right and the left and stop it when it's at the right, and you'll notice that the left foot has pronated. Um, so you should be able to add a, try to add a feeling thing to the no visual thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> at the same time, what you should notice is if I take my pelvis to the right, the left foot pronates, and my right foot is either supinated, supinating with it, or is just pronating less because mm-hmm. pronating less is almost the same as supinating in relative terms. Mm-hmm. That's quite complicated. So when I'm skiing, if I'm pronating my right, my left foot to yep. take my um, pelvis to the right, yep. then it makes sense that I would supinate my... <laughs> I've got a picture Le- of you turning away right in front of me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So I'm going to do a left turn. If I pronate my yep. right foot, yep. my pelvis to the left, then it makes yep. sense that I would be uh, supinating my left foot to accommodate that movement of the mass over it. Yep. Makes sense? So yep. therefore, when I'm in the, the kind of um, top of the turn and my hip's completely into the hill, that's when I think that I would be looking to have that supinated foot coupled with the outside pronated foot, which is driving me my mass my mass inside. So that's what we would call a. What point of the turn do you want to call that? Uh, right when my hips right in the in the in the mountain there. Oh, uh, like the one in the photo. The photo you're looking at. Yeah. Yep. Middle. We'll just say the middle middle of the arc, middle of the turn. Right in the middle of the arc. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So I've, initi- I've initiated my pronation. The skis. The skis have started to turn. Um, that's transferring my energy onto the inside of my ski. At the same time, um, I think there's a element of beginning to supinate the left foot while still flexing the knee um, to put me on the outside edge of my inside ski, which is going to create the the kind of parallel arc um, that enables us to carve the turn. So that's where I think the supination is probably at its most because that also sets me up, doesn't it, to, Mm -hmm. as I come out of that turn, I'm going to start applying pressure on the uphill ski toe in order to begin that pronation again, bring my mass back to the center and then continue that pressure through through the turn. Yep, yeah, awesome. Cool, yeah, because I've also, after reading your book, What the Foot, which for anyone that's listening is a really, really good read um, and you can apply to any sport, any kind of interest you're into. But anyway, after reading that, I started playing with supination um of my outside foot so like in that photo that you're looking at in the fall line or middle of the turn after i've pronated and i'm and i'm really low in the turn at that point i start supinating my outside foot because as you said if pronation puts me inside then supination starts to bring me outside and if you read your book also creates a rigid lever out of the foot which um is something to really push off of, then if I want to be pushing off that ski and moving forward and accelerating, 
uh, I need that. I need that movement. Yeah. So yeah, so I started this 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 last season with playing with the timing of that right at right at that point. You're looking at the photo, the middle of the turn. I'm thinking about really strongly supinating and trying to get all those muscles. You know, basically, what you say, it's almost every muscle is a resupinating muscle. So after you've pronated, you're really already starting to resupinate almost straight away. It's just when you get that maximum point is when you really get that sort of recoil effect that you see some of the, the top skiers, I think, in my opinion, kind of timing that exactly right. Their feet kind of, I guess, initiate that whole kinetic kind of whip. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And timing is, timing, it, the gate, everything comes down to timing. Muscle sequencing, joint action, optimizing a turn, walking to the bus. Yeah. <laughs> You know, if your pronation happens a fraction too late or a fraction too early, it's going to throw everything. Yeah. I don't know if people kind of cotton onto that. And that, for me, was where that transmission onto the edge and the, the idea that I move my foot, the boot responds and the ski responds. The, the, the quicker that is, the better. The longer that takes, the worse. You know, the harder it's going to be to make up, recover the ground. But also that sets us into a pattern where I literally end up doing that every single turn. And so I have to find another way. To, to make that ski turn and that's when the shoulders come in and the over rotations and the, mm-hmm. uh, the throwing of the hip or you know all the things that we see kind of out and about on the hill yeah but it, it, uh, looking at the picture again just the that supination and the idea of being interconnected it, as i that the supination should get that external rotation mm-hmm. um, in the rear foot which is going to externally rotate your tibia and bring your knee out and then you just think about the relationship again just looking at the 99 percent skiing around on the hill that knees inside what we used to call a framing yep uh, making that kind of triangle with the with the lower limbs yep then you know you can look at that and go that's that's either not supported with a footbed or they've got no awareness of how to supinate or they don't have the structures in place to do that yep um but it's also going to mean that they can't enjoy that curve and get the same experience that you or i would seek to get out of it Yep. Yours being different to mine, but but still we know that skiing is about experience and feeling and feeling your mass travel down this mountain at high speed on this slippery white stuff. But if if they're still A-framing, then they're actually already on the journey back out of the turn before they've even enjoyed the turn. And that, that's yep. not fun. Yeah. No. <laughs> that's not, so um, if you've got both feet pronating together, you, it's the old analogy of just crossing your tips. Yep. <laughs> um, and that, yeah, that's not fun. So it is an integral part of the ski turn for sure. Mm, yeah, it's cool. I've been running some workshops uh, in Sydney. We have this indoor ski slope um, that is like a revolving giant treadmill. I don't know. You've probably got them in the yeah. UK as well. I've seen them at the ski show, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've been running some workshops there where we start out off off the slope, bare feet, out of ski boots, just going through general movements of, you know, what, pronation is what supination is and you know find discover which foot you balance better on and which one has you know a more of a response of wanting to balance on the lateral arch which one's more on the inner inner arch and and see if we notice that in skiing and and it's and watching these people move around and walk you see exactly the same problems and same movements they have just in getting around and moving on the mat you know, without the ski boots on, as on 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 the uh, skiing simulator, so it's really cool for them to realise, and I think people to realise that you know these patterns that we have that can be seen in 
in like the flow motion model, your gait cycle thing, are just evident everywhere in everything you do. They are. They, the, the way that they, the, the joints and stuff communicate all the way up the chain is, is, has proved to me to be evident in every single activity we do, whatever sport. Um, and also, you know, the, the compensations, the way that we adapt to our problems is also, it's, it's there. And that's why we like to think we've, what we've done is created a map of how the body works on a global scale and, um, and it hasn't let us down yet. So, yeah, it's mm-hmm. really exciting. Awesome. So, was there one particular moment when you were boot fitting back in Europe uh, where you realized, you know, like, God, the, you know, the feet are the key. It's so important. Like, you know, or was it just you saw just so many examples of people coming back where you'd modified their feet and so you're like, wow, this has got to be something that we can take beyond ski boot fitting. It was just, it was, it was just every day. Um, mm-hmm. The gratitude that people would come back with, you know, um, had my best ski day ever. I think, you know, anyone who's done any um, boot fitting to will, will have experienced that kind of feedback. It, it, the thing about, I, I, this is nothing against the, the kind of city-based stores, but the, the thing about doing it on on the mountain was that if by the time they get to the top of the ski lift, their feet are hurting. They're skiing down and coming back to the store. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. You, you, had, you had no choice but to, to feel there was nowhere to hide um, and they, you were getting calls while you were out skiing so the client you fitted that morning is back in they wanted to know, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you didn't want that so you had to get pretty good pretty sharp really quickly um, yeah in, in and, Covent Garden it happened to be the guys the part time guys who had to work on the weekend that had to deal with your mess up yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know, yes, and the, but that mess up would be three months later. You don't remember the guys yeah, first. yeah, exactly, yeah. So you, yeah, exactly. Being on the slope is totally different. They were in your store every single night, and you by Thursday night you're like, oh my god, just go home. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, aside from those, the the difficult ones and the challenges, which you know they probably came down in hindsight to biomechanical challenges rather than just boot fit challenges. Um, mm-hmm. And we would have had that conversation, I'm sure, uh, back in the day. But um, the majority of people, and this is why people used to kind of come from other valleys to, to, to get fitted and wait until they got to resort to get fitted, was because the the outcome and the feedback from people was from nearly the majority of boot fits was, was that the little subtle changes, like I said earlier, just made a huge difference. Best day skiing and first mm-hmm. day of being comfortable in ski boots ever and the the joy and gratitude and 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 I don't know, one of my highest values is freedom um and i think when I mean, if you create freedom like it's, you don't feel free skiing around in fact it really pisses you off skiing around in uncomfortable boots mm-hmm. um, and so there's that sense of it's much higher than, than that do you know what i mean it's just the idea of helping somebody yeah do what they love well i think that that was kind of the thing that really rocks my boat yeah yeah cool do you have do you have a, a strange or really cool story of one particular person that stands out boot fit um no (laughs) (laughs) we saw some stuff i remember chatting uh, to our last grouping in san francisco they were there was a lady who literally i was chatting to her and i could see her toes had this kind of involuntary twitching where literally (laughs) they're almost like piano fingers where she had no idea what they were doing how they were controlled i think they'd been sewn and 
sewn back on or something like that, but her fingers <laughs> would kind of lift up in sequence, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, through the whole... <laughs> and we were chatting to her and seeing this, like, almost like a mouse run across the bottom. We're like, what was that? What was that? And the tie was just going... Brr. We saw some stuff. There was another guy who had the biggest, like, he had three times the length in his big toe as the rest of the toes, and he was a climber, and he used to... Um, wow. He used to fit his big toe. He learned to kind of just scrunch it all the way up to be the same length as his other toes oh. so that he could fit in his climbing boots, and he wanted that doing to his ski boots, and we had to kind of basically rebuild the, the toe box for him to... Like grind to, a hole and put his big toe you know, down into. Yeah, get some material to waterproof it and... Probably the answer. <laughs> God. Uh, but actually, just just in talking about these stories, uh, we also uh, there was a guy with a club foot in resort who was one of the reps, and we uh, we actually um, had to just build a boot for him. Took took a couple of uh, different boots apart, and you know, new cuff and just boots that had been returned or whatever. We ended up building a boot for him, which was a really fun experience. Huh. Um, so again, just to tick the box that this guy who's doing seasons out there could actually enjoy his skiing. Yeah. So would you, if, if you could build your own boot or if you could talk to Lang or Technica or whatever to build your own perfect boot, would would there be some things you would change? Like do you see currently ski boots do the job well enough? Do you think there's some things that they could improve on? Um, I don't know. Uh, we used to, especially with... Uh, Hamish, the windlass guy, we we kind of met actually over him mentioning at a wedding that to somebody that he figured that ski boots needed to have a different flex point. Um, and I turned around and said it would probably have to be around the big toe. And he kind of nearly fell over thinking nobody would, in their right mind, would normally say that. But, it, but <laughs> agreeing with him. Yeah. Um, um, and just somewhere there's probably not enough movement around the big toe to to help get more flex into the ski at that point around the ski center of mass maybe but for me i i i'm more interested in shoes ski boots do the job for me i'm comfortable mm -hmm. they, they get me up the hill um so i don't know if i would if i would modify the ski boots certainly without thinking so then shoes yeah tell us what you <laughs> tell us what you think about shoes that's my big secret, my big secret. <laughs> i want to do shoes but um if you the shoe has to have a centre of mass that matches the um, centre of mass of the foot. If you, if you were to measure them, if the mass of the shoe sits medial to the mass of the foot, it's going to drive a pronation into your foot. Uh -huh. uh, likewise, if it's too lateral, it will drive a supination into your foot or some kind of awkwardness. There's things like toes being um, dorsiflexed in shoes. That doesn't really work for the whole cycle. The toes having a varus forefoot that doesn't work for the for the for the gait cycle. All of this stuff kind of drives us into pronation. Having a really flat sole uh, doesn't really work. And then the question is, do shoes really work? And is there a way forward? Um, mm -hmm. And I think my flow motion model is probably probably a way that we can that we could do that. Which I plan to sit down with a designer and see what we come up with. But I'll keep those little little gems to myself. If that's all right. Uh -huh. <laughs> yes, excellent. <laughs> um, that's cool. Uh, are there any movements you're playing with in your skiing? Because I know after chatting with you, um, just about an inability to, or just a difficulty in shifting my pelvis yeah. in a certain direction, I found what was stopping me was just being too rigid 
in my spine. And so once I changed that, and I mean, it wasn't a heap of movement, but just allowing that unlocked more lateral movement in my pelvis and actually in video made it look like I moved less overall. Like I guess the movement had been spread out so much that there wasn't so much of an obvious move in, say, one part of the body. It looked more even and flowing. So is there anything you're playing with in skiing? Um, what you said, uh, what, what we find in the, in, the, in the model, there are the six phases of movement. There are the swim phase, strike phase, suspension phase, transition phase, shift phase, and propulsion phase. Um, and while you and I have kind of chatted about this um, a fair amount, uh, the, the majority of this limits seems to limit down to the um, phases where the heel and toe are on the ground. So when we're actually in the tripod, so suspension and, and transition. The rule of suspension is that the tripod, which is the first toe, first metatarsal, fifth metatarsal and heel are all in contact with the ground. And the rule of suspension is that the tripod is in contact with the ground or base of the boot and is pronating. Um, and that, that's, that's, when our, that's the one chance that our foot has to pronate in the cycle um, and is same in skiing um, and is therefore a really important phase of our movement. And transition is the other one, which is, and the rule of that is that the tripod is on the ground and the foot is supinating. Um, which, as we've already discussed, is equally um, uh, super important. So um, the final one is where the heel and gait is actually lifting up, but this happens while the foot is pronating is where we shift our pelvis laterally, which is what you were saying. Um, and um, I was just flashing back to... Uh, I had a session the other day with Warren Smith's son, Warren Smith yep. from the yep. Academy of Verbier, um, and we... Uh, in, he was in his posture required this shift phase thing so once we kind of just got him gently moving into it the first thing that the pair of them shared with each other was it's just like skiing putting your hip into the hill mm -hmm. so um people who struggle to get their hip into the right you, you have a wander over to a wall put your right foot foot forward uh in front of the other maybe have a wide stance and just gently start introducing that right hip into the wall um, and you'll notice how your body kind of responds. You tend to lean away with your skull as your pelvis is moving into the wall. Um, and you'll start to find things that stretch and move that you weren't aware of. This brings awareness to the brain and you might, and you'll start to find it carry over. So those three areas for me are always what I'm, I'm keen on making sure are in play when I'm, when I'm skiing. Um, and the other interesting part for me, just because this is the interesting part for me, <laughs> is if I, when, when I am skiing and if I can't, achieve something in my movement i want to stop and go why can't i do that today what part of my body is holding me back and, and yeah. that's where and that's where i'm always going to go is it you know is it the foot why can't i get uh, into my hip flexor or my adductor on the left or why can't i get my hip over or you know what's going on and 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 that goes in for life with me so we have a little check-in we're fond of our kind of internal um analysis really just checking in that we've been, we, we've got balance in our movement and if not mm -hmm. why and set about correcting it. Um, but on, on the big picture, I like I like the idea of being able to ski with the toe. But, you know, a little pressure of the toe here and a little movement of my foot and my whole body follows, allows freedom in the system. It makes it effortless and efficient as I cruise, cruise around the mountain and, and that I'm able to transfer those skills into different types of skiing from carving to bumps to, yeah. uh, you know, whatever. Yeah, cool. I like yeah. to feel the same on both sides. Otherwise, it starts <laughs> freaking out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
Do you feel do you feel you know almost exactly how to get your body kind of into that really as centered position as possible? Like do you do you feel you've almost got that like the holy grail of alignment? <laughs> I can have it. <laughs> yes. No, I know my patterns and and I know my my history and and my you know um remember duck, the duck feet were was as a kind of response to 13 ankle inversion sprains wow uh, a, a broken jaw a dislocated um shoulder from from a ski injury um and they interestingly all fall into the same pattern um so uh-huh. it's as if one it's like I couldn't have broken another side of my jaw is, or I couldn't have dislocated the other shoulder because I have to, my body's reacting in a way to the original inversion sprains, yeah. um, which were, you know, a complete, uh, they really screwed my body up. So um, there is a rewind button in the body where we'll just start defaulting to old things if things aren't right. So if you're tired or like when I had kids and we were up nearly all night every night, my body started reverting back to to the default stress patterns and, and, yep. and I think you do that and so again awareness is to be aware of that, that when stuff goes wrong it's not that you have a problem it's just that something has happened in your body that is and the problem is a signal letting you know so um, you know that happens when I'm if I'm playing sport tennis skiing football you know whatever it is when when those things show up it's just a matter of going ah I think something's not right yeah and checking in with rather than running off to to get a treatment um, yeah so, yeah it's quite yeah, cool Full circle awareness is a big thing, right? Yeah, yep, absolutely. Yeah, and so you can just, using your own kind of awareness and knowledge and obviously your sort of, yeah, your map, you can kind of fix yourself, can't you? We try. Try. (laughs) I I just reacted to the word fix, actually. Um, Sorry, yes, that was the wrong word. Yeah, a lot of people want to be fixed or, um, you know, and, and, and it's just a, a language thing. I'd just like to change the idea of mm-hmm. that you go to a therapist. The idea is that the therapist shines a light on your problem and you could set about looking after yourself and becoming aware of it and doing the right things not to not to do it again. And again, we're in, you're asking a question where I'm in the 1% here. Uh, the majority of people are going to go running looking for someone. Um, but we generally try to help people understand that, that that we're not there to fix them we're there to help them facilitate uh, a way out but they're mm-hmm. actually going to do the work for themselves and a lot of that the deeper you go into that process the more it is a, about creating an environment for people to heal themselves or creating an environment for them to to do whatever they do better in order to access higher states of performance because um, mm-hmm. it's just information that they are lacking and that's I, I think as therapists that's what we do or we should set about embarking our, ourselves to be the provider of, um, rather than offering a fix. So when it comes to do, my, do I fix myself? As, <laughs> I don't think I'll ever be fixed, given given. Because uh, oh, I also had like half of over eight, over half of a medial meniscus removed, right, uh, a long time ago. Which is and it's just such an anchor to my to my problems. So mm-hmm. right, aside from getting that all glued back in, and then I don't know if a fix is actually possible. So yeah. I set up optimizing myself given the current state of awareness in my system. Yes. <laughs> don't I yeah 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 no that's good that's good no that's... on an in, as a sending information out level anybody who's listening who's used to you know you've got a shoulder problem and you're running off to to get it treated um 
just recognize that it's probably not the shoulder that needs treating. It's your system that needs treating, that needs taking care of, and um, and things need looking at in a different way in order to uh, um, get you out of that space. Mm -hmm. yeah. Very good. Well, I'm really uh, looking forward to you coming out to Australia in October, and it's the first time you guys are... Yeah, the first time you guys are coming out to Australia, isn't it? Yeah. Have you got Have you got a full course yet, or are they they're spots? Well, there's, there's still spots. Um, I, I don't know what the full, the quota is at the moment, but we're it's doing very well. Excellent. It's doing very well. So um, yeah, it will be a good course. Also, it's our the immersion where we're doing the six days to present the full map, which we've not done before. We're doing it in London the first time in September. So you guys will be the second run for that. Oh, good. So there'll be someone else before us. <laughs> yeah. So there'll be lots of support material and um, the opportunity to for when we leave for you to literally set yourself free without any of the, without any missing parts, which has sadly been a part of the process uh, wow. that people have had That's to awesome. up until now. Yeah. So something to be excited about. And, yeah. A lot of a lot of a lot of brain explosion, probably stuff and overload and like yeah. th lots, lots of, of intense thinking. Lots of coffee. Yeah, lots of coffee. Excellent. So it's going to be three three days break. Three days, is that right? Yeah. Yep. Excellent. That's cool. Yeah, we'll need that break in the middle. And if people would like to find out about this course, because I'm going, and I think it's going to be, I'm. I found out about, I should tell you this, when, um, who was it, I, was, I started listening to the Liberated Body podcast last yeah. year and I remember sh sh uh, the lady, Brooke Thomas, interviewed David Weinstock from Neurokinetic Therapy and I thought that was yeah. a pretty interesting one and at the end he said, I'm playing, oh, I'm, I started playing with pronation a little bit more because of this guy, Gary Ward, and it was at that time I was kind of obsessed with the fact that, you know, pronation was actually not a bad thing, and then yeah. to hear that someone else was actually talking about this um, really kind of like sparked my interest, and then so I looked you up and found your videos and your site, and then just, I guess, have followed and bought the book, and and um, yeah, so to let you know, that's how I found out about you was pronation. So you're the pronation man in my mind. Well, the yeah, pro, well, pro the pronation is okay, man. I'm proud of that. I mean, there's a lot of foot stuff out there. Um, there's generally generally good stuff, but most of it comes back to the classic short foot component of uh, trying to reintroduce a, a supinating foot to minimise and take away pronation, where the, where the value actually is. Um, that the, the body is set up to control and decelerate pronation and that and then when you actually provide pronation to the system it creates a an interesting kind of lighting up of the whole whole chain so our, everything from our hamstrings and our glutes and our low back are they're, they're in 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 a strange way they're set up to to minimize the pronation as well so when they when all that stuff disappears and we start going well you've got pronated feet let's supinate them we're not we're not switching the lights on in the brain to to reactivate this stuff so we end up on a kind of uh, gravy yeah. train of, of no no outcome and that and that's what i feel um and many yeah. of the practitioners who come on my course will they openly say i'm sick of people coming back with the same problem yeah uh, and so we need to look at things differently we need to think differently approach differently um and thankfully that's what i've always done and uh, um and 
<laughs> when you study pronation for what pronation is, it's 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 mind blowing. It's not yeah. just pronation. It's not yeah. just pronation. And the yeah. idea, right, no, nobody can really pronate, nobody can really supernate. And then there are the naysayers who will turn around and say, you know, you used to talk about a, a, not a good, healthy pronation, and, and that's, you know, BS. But the truth is, I think there is an optimal space of pronation that you can visualize and, and see in the, in, the, in the structure. And if we don't have that, we see problems. So um, I'm going to stick to my guns on that one. Yeah, excellent. excellent. Um, thank you, Mr. Pronation. Sorry? That says, thank you, Mr. Pronation. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> in terms of finding out where to go for the course, yes, uh, um, the very one simple thing to do is, if you are interested, is to email chris at anatomyinmotion.co.uk and you'll be sent a brochure um, and open up an inquiry about in, into more details about the course. Our website is not providing that at the moment and is in a rebuild stage. So okay. um, that's the quickest and smoothest way to go about this. Or like Anatomy in Motion on Facebook? Um, like the Anatomy in Motion? Is that, is that working? Are you? Yeah. Yep. Facebook.com forward slash Anatomy in Motion. Yep. Or my page, which is forward slash Gary Allen Ward. Um, yep. There's certainly good stuff on there. Um, oh, the book that I mentioned? Whatthefoot.co.uk. Yep. That's good. I can recommend that. Oh, and I should say, because I've people I'm listening all over the world to this so the courses are run um you've got when's you've got some in america coming up as well or well, we're in new york next week okay um, then we're bristol in the uk and um london and toronto then in canada and then you in melbourne and yep. and then dublin ireland before next year's schedule kicks off which we don't know what or where just yet yeah excellent Great. Well, um, anything you want to close out with to say about skiing in the body or anything else? <laughs> uh, I think we might have covered it. Yeah, I think so. But uh, yeah, but thanks very much for your time. It's been um, lots of fun really chatting. Fun. And, um, it's nice to have a different spin on it, actually, Tom, to relate it into something I'm interested in, skiing sports-wise. Yeah. Yeah. So, Cool. Yeah, good, good. Well, I know you've definitely got me because now whenever I watch people skiing, I'm trying to think what would they look like when they're walking and what would they be missing and so it's really helped. Put and you really... watch both. Look at both. Yeah. Watch, watch them walk on a on a Coach's Eye app, yep. slow it down, ski them, film it, slow it down. I bet you can see the same stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, no, I've really, really loved that. Wicked. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks very much, Gary, and uh, look forward to seeing you in October. You're welcome, mate. I can't wait. Look forward to it. <laughs> Cheers. Take care, buddy. Bye. Some of you may already know that I've been advising Carve and working with the team for some time now, and this year the team has come up with probably some of the most exciting developments to date. They've been working on representing the most fun parts of skiing in their system. They've developed three brand new metrics, progressive edging, early weight transfer, and one that measures the G-force in a turn. And that one, I have to say, I got to try it out this winter in Australia, and that is really fun. This new addition is going to be incredible for anyone who's looking to really push their skiing up a notch. Now, what's even more interesting for this year is the system now detects what terrain you're on and pulls that into your ski IQ score. 
This is a huge change and a great upgrade because sometimes it would only really score well if you were skiing on perfectly groomed snow. Now it's going to accommodate and adjust whether you're skiing in steeper slopes, more chopped up snow or firmer snow. So this is a very big change that I think is massive kudos to the team to keep pushing and progressing the app even further. If you're the kind of skier that is looking for a tool to help push your technique that little bit further, then you should definitely check out what Carve can do. Use the code GELLIE15, that's G-E-L-L-I-E-1-5, to get 15% off for the next two weeks.